I'm going to invite Sabrina up to read our passage for this morning from Ephesians 3, 1 through 13. Just guessing. Oh, I didn't want to insult you. It's yeah. okay. I won't wait. <laughs> um, good morning, everybody. And I'd like to thank the pastor for giving me an opportunity to um, share the word. And before we do, I just want to real quickly go in prayer um, over the word. Lord God, I pray that you give me the correct words that I read correctly and smoothly and um, that all of us take in your word and understand it, Lord, and um, yearn to learn more from Chris as a result. In Jesus' name, amen. This is why I, Paul, am a prisoner of Christ for you Gentiles. You've heard, of course, about the responsibility to distribute God's grace, which God gave to me for you, right? God showed me his secret plan and a revelation, as I mentioned briefly before. When you read this, you'll understand my insight to the secret plan about Christ. Earlier generations did not know this hidden plan that God, that God, I'm sorry, has now revealed to his holy apostles and prophets through the Spirit. The plan is that the Gentiles would be content, be co-heirs and parts of the same body, and that they would share with the Jews in the promises of God. In Christ Jesus, through the gospel, I became a servant of the gospel because of the grace that God showed me through the exercise of his power. God gave me, gave his grace to me the least of all God's people, to preach the good news about the immeasurable riches of Christ to the Gentiles. God sent me to reveal a secret plan that had been hidden since the beginning of time by God, who created everything. God's purpose is now to show the rulers and powers in the heavens the many different varieties of his wisdom through the church. This was consistent with the plan that he had from the beginning of time that he be accomplished through Christ Jesus our Lord. In Christ Jesus, we have bold and confident access to God through faith in him. So then I ask you not to become discouraged by what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. Thanks, Sabrina. Thank you. Has anyone ever seen an M. Night Shyamalan movie in this room? Hands? Yes? Okay, good. I'm working under the assumption, the first assumption that most of you have, and the second assumption that any spoilers I might give in the next couple of minutes are public domain. Like, we're talking 99, early 2000s here, so if you haven't seen it, you won't see it. Um, but you should, maybe. You see, uh, M. Night 
made a stretch of movies in the, in the late 90s and on into the 2000s. Sixth Sense, Unbreakable, Signs, The Village. The ones I leave out, if you're like a major fan, forgive me. Um, you see, if you've seen any or all of these movies, you understand that his thing in all these is a twist, right? It's a grand plot wrinkle somewhere deep into the movie that completely reorients everything you'd seen up until that point. Take, for instance, The Sixth Sense. Most of us will never forget the first or even the second time we watched a young Haley Joel Osment, right? Seeing dead people as he, like, breathed out smoke because it was so cold. We had our minds blown when we finally realized, and this is a spoiler alert, Bruce Willis was dead the whole time. <laughs> and, then, and then in that movie, when we realized that a series of quick edits, and this is, this is kind of like a great part of his filmmaking, shows all the hints that we had the whole way, including Haley Joel Osment saying, I see dead people. You know, like that should have been a good hint for us that he was seeing a dead person. We see red doorknobs that never really opened, whole conversations that never physically happened. Even the opening scene where um, Mark Wahlberg's brother, he, he was the new kid on the block guy. Donnie Wahlberg shot him dead. Like, we should have realized he was dead, right? But then he, he, he reveals this to us. He, he lifts up this veil, and everything that we had seen up until that point gets completely transfigured in light of that knowledge that we've gained. His whole perspective as a writer and a director was to, to trade on open secrets. Something that's there all along, there for the taking, but rarely noticed until there's a key bit of inform information added, a, a key. That's why most of his movies are, have like really short like french fry shelf life. right? They're really awesome the first time around, and then when you reheat them, it's not good at all. So today, we peek in on Paul's exploration of God's open secret. And I, I really liked the translation that we use, the Common English Bible, because um, in most of our translations, you'll, you'll see over and over this word mystery, God's mystery. And I, I think sometimes it's a little too out there for us to grab. And so the Common English uh, translates it, God's secret plan. It's the inclusion of the Gentiles into God's people, the tearing down of hostility and the making peace in Christ. Over the last several weeks, we've, we've been in this series, rooted and grounded. We, we, we're attempting and we're asking God to, to grow our imaginations and our capacity to feed off of, to sink our roots deep into the ground of his abundance and of that grace that brings about peace. Remember right at the beginning, grace to you and peace peace flowing from grace. And last week, we heard from my friend Mike Boone about this sledgehammer Christ. For he himself is our peace who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. And this wall is as real in our daily lives as that concrete wall that stretched through Berlin in the late 80s, up until the end of the late 80s. But rarely is that barrier that obvious. I, I wish we had more concrete walls because we could see them. 
Our walls are a little more sophisticated. We have ideological walls that make you a villain if I disagree with you or you disagree with me. We have racial walls that we wish were, were just, that we could take down like, you know, that they were painted with stars and bars so we could see them and we could just take them down. But instead, they're way more subtle. We try to bleach out differences between you and I. We try to play nice um, and don't address them. We separate. You know, and this is very real, even here. Like a month ago, I was sitting on the steps of the church, and this this guy um, wheels up in a wheelchair, uh, a white guy, old, older white guy, and he, he says, "Are you the pastor here?" And um, I was actually sitting with another pastor of the church down the street, and we're like, "We're both pastors," you know, which is really strange. But uh, and and he says, "I just want to know if I could come to your church because I have a black wife." And like we looked at each other incredulous, like this is still a thing, these racial walls. There's economic walls that keep us apart, keeping that bad element out of my community. And just sign up for a Durham listserv and you can figure out these racial and economic walls. There's sexual and gender walls that hold others at bay, that force anyone who's not like me or that doesn't have the same struggles as me away from me. There's social walls that are based on fear, fear of being known, because I think, for me at least, it feels like if someone really knew me, they wouldn't really like me that much. Or there's a myth that there's not enough to go around, or that someone's always out to get me, and on and on and on. There's walls. All these walls create in-groups on my side of the wall and out-groups on the other side of the wall. All these walls have been knocked down in Christ, leveled, demolished, dismantled to, to make way for like a creative reconstruction, a new peace, shalom, unity, honesty, community here, and now, if you read the gospel accounts, you see this sort of leveling, this sort of blurring, this complicating throughout Jesus' ministry. That's what it meant for him to inaugurate his kingdom. His disciples are most of the time just trying to keep up. Imagine if you're hanging around Jesus as he's doing this. Every morning you're waking up and your favorite paradigm is probably going to get shifted, right? You're like shiniest sacred cow is going to get barbecued when you're hanging out with Jesus. Your most impenetrable fence that you've set up is going to get knocked down by the gale force winds of God's grace through his son, by his spirit. And this is the same mission that Paul's been enlisted in. The same reconciliation that he's pulling out every metaphor out of his bag that he knows to be able to tell people about it buildings and root systems, bodies, on and on and on. So right out of the bat in our passage today, we hear from prisoner Paul. And it really seems like you have to take seriously a guy who's suffering, right? A guy who's in jail. I mean, this is like um, some of our great writings come out of jail. This is, this is where 
uh, Mandela writes so well, or Bonhoeffer, MLK writes from, uh, from prison. Think, think about that also, though. Like, would you rather read a book, you know, about adversity from a, a cancer doctor or a cancer survivor, right? <laughs> would you rather read a book about war from, like, a drone pilot who's really detached or a foot soldier who's dodging IEDs, right? If you want to know the truth, you'll most likely have to also, to some degree, know suffering, know discomfort. Missiologist um, Leslie Newbegin, he, he also, I'll give him credit, he coined this term open secret. He reminds us that being God's people doesn't exempt us from this kind of suffering. More likely, it plunges us right into it, more deeply into pain, more deeply into the endurance that it takes from experiencing these things. He talks about Israel, he says. Through the repeated hammer blows of defeat, destruction, and deportation interpreted by the faithful prophets, Israel has to learn that election is not for comfort and security, but for suffering and humiliation. God's choosing them is not for comfort and security, but for suffering and humiliation. Elsewhere he says, election is not responsibility, or election is for responsibility, not for privilege. In the midst of Paul's suffering, the, the next line after he says he's a prisoner, he's coming to them as a prisoner in Christ. He says, that he has a responsibility to distribute God's grace. It's a responsibility that everyone who's tasted and seen that the Lord is good has. This turns us from dinner guests at a divine table to host, to steward, to street caller, to valet. Remember that banquet parable from Luke 14? Remember... Um, the master uh, is throwing a banquet, and everyone he invites says, oh, I'm kind of busy that day. Can you check back on another day? And he gets mad, and so he tells his steward, he says, go quickly to the city streets, the busy ones in the side streets, and bring out the poor, crippled, blind, and lame. And the servant said to him, Master, your instructions have been followed, and there is still room. The master said to the servant, go to the highways and back alleys and urge people to come in so that my house will be filled. The mystery of the kingdom of God coming in Christ is that banquet table is still taking reservations. And that we're part of welcoming people to this table who never saw themselves there. We come to understand, in the words of another theologian, the true God gives so that we become joyful givers, not just self-absorbed receivers. Givers. Generous invitational. I've been thinking a lot lately just about what Christianity's call is. Like once you strip away like the manipulation or leveraging people, you know, like that, that's a big criticism is, uh, of Christianity is like it, it's manipulative, right? What is it all about? What are we calling people to? And I think our our main vocation, our main calling, of course, is to come and die. To surrender your life to Christ. Faith, of course, means trust. 
to trust in his work on the cross for your sake, in your place, to take away your sins. But the calling is also to come and live, to follow Jesus, to follow him as he walks out of a tomb and into the world, to be animated by his spirit and to have your whole life and your whole imagination and all your expectations changed to join in with those who are joined to him, to gather and to gather with those who are finding faith, those who are coming to experience Christ, rebirth, renewal, restoration. And so I think if that's all true, and I do think it's true, maybe setting up the potluck table downstairs or cleaning up after it might be one of the most Christian things we do on a Sunday. You see, it's far less explicitly spiritual than singing big, you know, lofty words like, be thou my vision, man, whoa. You know, and my, um, my mentor always says, like, I can't sing that third verse that we sang like five times, the riches I heed not nor man's empty praise because I really care about man's praise and it's not empty to me. We can sing all these things, we can do all these things, we can receive from the table, we can pray, but the actual practice, the action, the good works being done by God's good workmanship for the sake of others, for the growth and health of these bodies in God's body, a lot of that's happening downstairs. Combining with people who might not naturally be inclined to be with each other, who might actually be more inclined to hate each other, that's gospel. To serve each other, to share with each other, to talk to each other, and more importantly, to listen to each other, that's good news. And this is the same momentum that Paul's message carries. Our faith, enlivened by the Holy Spirit, unites us. It sticks us to Christ's side. It slips us into the stream of God's grace. We lose our timidity and we gain this boldness, this confidence. It's not arrogance. Because we weren't chosen, but Christ was and we're in him. And then in, in Ephesians, the verbs start to get more and more cooperative. Where we once were going it alone, now if we remember back to chapter 2, we're made alive with Christ. We're raised with Christ. We're seated with Christ in the heavenlies. And now, even more mysteriously here in chapter 3, we inherit with. We become parts of a body with. We share in promises with God's people, the Jews who were there before us. In my family, this is five-day-old Emmett Ruth, inheriting, becoming family, sharing in the promises with Noah and Titus, even though their history comparatively is a lot longer. Their standing is a lot more established. This is the gospel mystery, and it's gospel because it's good news. At least it's good news to the younger <laughs> child who gets welcomed in and given a claim that he or she has no business accepting. 
and this is a mystery because it's an open secret that's always been the trajectory of how God was going to redeem humanity through redeemed humanity who've encountered the redeemed human, Jesus Christ. Centuries and generations were looking forward to this punchline. And now once you know the secret, like Paul knows the secret, it's time to blurt it out as much and as often and as articulately. Articulately, that's amazing. <laughs> and gracefully as possible. Grace, grace. And we call this stewarding, where, where we're entrusted with something and we've got to take care of it. This responsibility to distribute God's grace. It comes with a lot of risk, especially for the older brother, the older sister, the older sibling. Remember with me, Jesus' kingdom parable about the three stewards from Matthew 25. Do you remember that story? He starts by saying, and you can refresh on this later, but he starts by saying, the kingdom of heaven is like a man who was leaving on a trip. He called his servants and handed his possessions over to them. To one he gave five valuable coins, to another he gave two, and to another he gave one. He gave each servant according to that servant's ability, and then he left on the journey. And then we remember what happens, right? He comes back and he checks on them, and he asks the one that he gave five, how'd you do? And he says, well, you know, I invested, I, I made it happen, I doubled the investment, here's ten. He says, whoa, way to go. Goes the next guy who he gave two. It's a little less. The guy, you know, no less importantly, uh, invests it, makes another two, doubles in the investment. Same percentage yield, right? Finally, he gets to the guy with one who seems like he's scared to death of this master, scared to screw up, scared to lose it, scared that he's just going to get dinged, right? And so he comes back and he says, I hit it. Here's your dollar back, safe and sound. And the master goes berserk on him, gives his money to the wise investor. Moral of the story, and, I, and I'm not sure all these stories have morals as much as they're parables that invite us into understanding something more about God's kingdom. But the moral of the story is that our stewardship, our being entrusted to care, is risky, inherently risky. It's going to require us to do something that we might not even be comfortable with. Remember again that bit about suffering. Stewardship, being in on God's open secret, resist fear and loss and the kind of care that's just an excuse for lack of faith. That sort of fear and the kind of relationship that it's just kind of afraid of God, afraid to mess up. In short, if you're afraid you're going to lose it, whatever it is, salvation or favor or reputation or possessions, you've already lost it. You're already living in an economy of lack and of fear and death, and you've lost it. Whoever wants to save their life will lose it but whoever loses their life for my sake will save it. 
This is something I really relate to. Um, <laughs> depending on how you interpret this, I'm, I'm either very wise or overly cautious because I've, I've only applied to one school and I got in and I went there. And then I decided to transfer and applied to that and got in and went there. I, I dated and married one girl. I applied to one grad school, got in and went there. I've never been turned down. It's awesome, right? And I do praise God for some of that clarity, that stability that this track record indicates. But also, in a sense, I sense in myself a profound lack of risk in my stewardship of big things and small things, right? If you're never losing, if you're never encountering that kind of fear, if you're never on that edge, maybe you're not doing what you're supposed to be. Maybe you're not living faithfully. Maybe you're too comfortable. Finally, Paul explicitly states what that grand mystery is. If you've been sitting there the whole time like, what is this open secret? It's not that open to me. The New Testament uses that word mystery, mysterion, 27 times and six of those are in Ephesians. Four more in Colossians, like packed stuff. It's tempting when we read that word to assume that it's something incomprehensible, something unknowable. And, you know, God says, my ways are not your ways and my thoughts not your thoughts. So there's some truth in that. Everyone talk, when Paul talks about mystery, he's talking about a secret plan that's no longer a secret. That surprising moment, that surprising fulfillment that God has done exactly what he's told us he would do and, art, and almost nobody saw it coming. He spills the beans in verse 6, Paul does. This plan is that Gentiles would be co-heirs and parts of the same body and that they would share with the Jews in the promise of God in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Lest that sound kind of anticlimactic or esoteric or outdated. Who cares if Jews and Gentiles mix? That doesn't sound very revolutionary. Let's remember that to be a Jew meant to be in on God's rescue and renewal. They'd receive the promised land. They were blessed to be a blessing. For Gentiles to get in on that meant they'd get in on it all. Forgiveness in a future law and land, nothing short of life with God. And to accomplish that, God did something truly remarkable. To achieve this peace, he lavished his grace. For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son. In short, God's open secret was Jesus. Colossians 2.2 says, My goal is that in their hearts they will be encouraged and united together in love so that they might have the riches of assurance that come with understanding so that they might have the knowledge of the secret plan of God, namely Christ. Colossians 1.26 and 27. I'm completing, I'm completing it with a secret plan that has been hidden for ages and generations but for which has now been revealed to his holy people. God wanted to make the glorious riches of his secret plan known among the Gentiles, which is Christ living in you, the hope of glory. 
all of that expectation for salvation, that we retrace those steps every year during Advent, that we sing songs like, Come Thou Long Expected Jesus, has come in Christ. He formed around himself God's people, a ragtag bunch with a mission, with a message, men, women, and children, roughneck, blue-collar fishermen, violent zealots on both sides of the political spectrum, establishment and rebel. Paul himself goes from being a hitman towards Christ's followers to being a prisoner following Christ, writing to others who now, he now considers to be servants of Christ and, and managers of God's secrets. 1 Corinthians 4. The result of this mystery is, as we said, a willingness, an ability to suffer, a radical openness to others, vision to see seemingly mundane things as core to who we are and what we do, and finally, a, a boldness, a confidence to return over and over to God through faith in Christ. Knowing that when we are united to Christ, we share in his death, we share in his life, we share in love and in intimacy with his Father. God looks at us the way he looks at Christ. Flashing back to the parable of the stewards with their risky investments, upon the master's return, he finds those two stewards who took the risk to double their investments, to treat what their master had given them as if the master um, was investing it, to boldly risk losing in order to, faith, to be faithful in gaining. The master addresses each of them and he says, well done, you are a good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a little, I'll put you in charge of much, come, Celebrate with me. Being in on God's open secret invites us to boldly risk being a part of what God is doing in the world that he loves so much he gave his son. And to do that in a very localized way, in our, in our families, in our neighborhoods, in our apartment complexes, at our jobs. He invites us, he invites you and you and you, you, not you, not you. He invites me to be blessed and to be a blessing. To be a part of the same body with others. To share the good news and to come celebrate with him. Pray with me. Father, we thank you for being a God of open secrets, <laughs> surprising us over and over and over so that we can't exhaust what you're going to do in our lives in this world. And even in a, a world where we look around and we see brokenness, we, we anticipate, we, we look forward to and we expect you to, to move and to work and to change lives, to change my life, to change lives in this room, and to use each other to do that. Father, we're so thankful for this grace that we're 
trusted to be stewards of, to, to share. Thankful that the call is not just to, to hoard it, but to share it and to spread it. We thank you for your good news. We thank you that it is a mystery, but it's a mystery that you've included us in on. Be with us in this time of confession, in this time of conversation with you. Let us hear well. Let us listen. Let us open our lives, open our hearts, open our affections and those things that we most deeply care about and hope to be true. Let's open them before you and let us trust you enough to to deal with them, to take away things, to add things, to change things. We trust you, we love you, and we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.